Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to the Rest is Politics Question Time with me, Rory Stewart. And me, Alistair Campbell. And uh, how are you today, Alistair? I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm fine. How are you? I'm, I'm, I've got, got, got a bit, bit fluey, coldy. I'm afraid. So I hope I'm going to be, hope I'm going to be bright enough for you on the, on the question time. Well, I hope I'm going to be, going to be bright enough for me in Blackpool on Saturday. More to the point, I'll definitely be bright enough by Blackpool. I'll be better Excellent. by Blackpool. Excellent. How's the, um, how's the reception to your TV thing on? I mean, good. I think Channel Four were very happy with the, with the figures. Um, just remind, just remind us, this is Tuesday nights. Make me prime oh, minister, Rory. Rory, you're getting good at this plugging thing. Tuesday night, Channel Four, nine fifteen. Make me prime minister. We're now on to episode three. I promise you, the next episode, episode three, crisis management, is TV gold. If it doesn't win a BAFTA, I'll be very, very, very upset. <laughs> but no, it's going well. And I think there was there was a wonderful. Um, I tweeted uh, on Tuesday a, a picture of. An article in The Guardian, which was about how awful this trust was as prime minister and the ad team and the algorithm had somehow conspired to have an advert for the program inside that piece. I was very, very chuffed about that. I think it's showing the candidates that politics is a lot harder than it looks, but it's also, I think, showing why people like the candidates want to get into politics because they don't like the way that politics is being done. So, and I think as we, as we go through and we whittle down, we eventually get down to the final three. I think people will start to see that there are some, you know, there are some potential very good politicians there. Good. Okay. Well, here's a question from Jill Logie. She basically asked how a budget's written. And there seems to be a statement from Trust that although she knew about the cut of the 45p rate, they hadn't discussed it with the cabinet. So question is, do chances just write the budget and everyone finds out the content when it's announced everyone else in the cabinet? I mean, I wasn't as shocked by her answer on that as others. Uh, and that's perhaps because I lived through the Tony Blair, Gordon Brown years. And sometimes we were, we'd be aware of the broad thrust. We wouldn't always have all of the detail. Tony, by and large, you'd expect the prime minister to know. But in terms of the cabinet, not always is the answer. And don't forget, I know Dominic Cummings has been on about this, that Liz Truss, he believes, was the leakiest member of the Johnson cabinet, that she was sort of, you know, briefing stuff out of cabinet the whole time. And if that's true, it may be that she thinks that of her colleagues, that if you tell them things, the chances are that they'll brief it out. And of course, with the budget, that can be very, very difficult and very, very sensitive. 
Cabinet is very, very weird, isn't it? I was thinking about it because there's usually more than 30 people sitting around that table. So you've got the secretaries of state who run departments, you've got chief whips, and then you've got these ministers who attend cabinet. So Tom Tugendhat, you know, for example, is a junior minister in the Home Office, but he's attending cabinet as a security minister. And one of the questions is how you can actually run anything uh, with that number of people around a table. I mean, when, when I was in the cabinet with Theresa May, it was very, very wooden. We mm. would all speak one after another, but there wasn't really much opportunity back and forth. And I'm running this, um, this NGO that I'm working with at the moment, I can't really imagine running a sort of senior leadership team with more than 30 people and getting sensible discussions out of them. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, I remember Tony Blair always used to say that if he felt the first that he knew of a problem that a cabinet minister wanted to raise was at the table of the cabinet, he'd think that our political systems and management systems weren't working. I think the cabinet committee system run well is actually quite an effective way of, of running a government. But I do, you know, if, if you look back over the, the Johnson period, it does appear to have been one of the leakiest cabinets there's ever been. We actually had very little trouble with leaking from within the cabinet meetings themselves. Yeah, well, it's been, for, been very weird, hasn't it? Because there's been all these attempts where they get the cabinet secretary to literally look at people's phones and check their WhatsApp messages yeah, and threats. Yeah, and yeah. So that started with Gavin Williamson when he was accused of leaking from the National Security Council about Huawei and lost his job, mm. which he's always very much denied. But that was the cabinet secretary at the time seizing his phone and going through it, trying to find out who he'd called. And again, you obviously get this with Dominic Cummings talking about Liz Truss, a sort of paranoid attempt to keep secrecy. Mm. Now, here's a question from somebody who I, who I know, certain know of, Celia Richardson, who I, I think it was the same Celia Richardson works for the National Trust, uh, an organization which should be supported, in my view. She says, a rival podcast, I think this may be the Young Upstarts, Mateless and Sopel and Goodall on News Agents. A rival podcast looked at 55 Tufton Street, supposedly independent think tanks, and is basically saying that we should do the same. Now, maybe we should later do a proper discussion on 55 Tufton Street because I share her obsession with it. Dark money, nobody quite knows where the money comes from. David W. says, did 55 Tufton Street decide who our prime minister should be? Now, what's, this, what's your experience of 55 Tufton Street, Rory? So I, I've, been, I've been in and out of 55 Tufton Street. So it's a, it's a little, um, I mean, it's literally a street just on the other side of Westminster Abbey. And mm. a lot of think tanks there. And of course, very convenient for uh, members from the House of Commons to pop over because it's within the division lobby. So you can go and give a speech. And if the division bell rings, you can just about sprint back in time to vote. You've got eight minutes to vote before they close the doors. So you have to be within eight minutes run. And there's a surprising number of think tanks crowded around Parliament Square for that reason. It's not my style. They tend to be on the libertarian right of the party. Um, I don't know whether Taxpayers Alliance is in that. Absolutely. They're, they're, all, they're all part of it, yeah. But yeah, one of the things that Priti Patel and Liz Truss very much did was to take as their spads, their special advisors when they became Secretary of State, they took them from the Taxpayers Alliance. Well, her, her economic advisor now is from 55 Tufton Street. Right. And, and one of the biggest critics of the U-turn the W turn on the mini budget um, was Mark Littlewood, who runs the Institute of Economic Affairs, which is also there. And I do think our media treats them like they are kind of independent commentators. They are players. They are political players, part of a very, very, in my view, hard right agenda. And so, Celia, thank you for the question and good luck with your campaign to stop being undermined by them. Uh, so my understanding is that it's also, we, you know, we use 55 Tufton Street as a kind of shorthand because although Taxpayers Alliance is still there, I think others... It was also where Vote Leave and Brexit Central mm. were in the past. But yeah. I think it's a way of pointing to these things. The most influential 
conservative think tank when I was in government was probably something called Policy Exchange, which was run mm. by Michael Gove and then by Nick Bowles, mm. where, where again, they very much didn't seem to like me very much. <laughs> I, it's, a, it's an odd thing. I mean, I, I, when I was running for the leadership, people came to me in a very concerned way saying, the head of Policy Exchange says you're not sound. And he'd be going around <laughs> saying that to conservative donors. So it's... um. No, it's a weird world, but I don't think they choose the leaders. In the end, the leaders are, as it appears, directly chosen by that very small number of more elderly, more right-wing people who form the members of the Conservative Party. Yeah, I, I guess what the question means is that they, they've so influenced the terms of the debate within the Conservative Party that that's what's, that's what's happened. There's a great question here from Claire Q. I've just realised, she says, that Alistair is still in charge of Labour comms. Step one. Do a political podcast with somebody who appeals to soft Tory voters. Step two, get it to number one. Now, I guess what that's saying, Rory, is that she's thinking, Claire is thinking that maybe you are helping to influence people to move over to Labour. And I think I'm right in saying that Nick Bowles has come out for Labour, hasn't he? Yeah. Do you think I'm the sort of 55 Tufton Street of the of the new Starmer Labour movement? I think you may be, you know, playing a useful role in that. What was it that the, the Soviets used to call it? The useful idiot. Useful idiot. No, I right. wasn't going to say that. I wasn't going to say that, but you've said it now. <laughs> so I'm, I'm going I'm to duck that one. Um, da- Daniel Norris, as a regular listener from China, what would be your main concern and issues on the imminent re-election of Xi Jinping as he seeks to further strengthen his influence in the Middle Kingdom? Mm. It's interesting that he's asking that question. Is he suggesting there's some doubt about him continuing? There have been sort of murmurings of, uh, of him being in more political trouble than we no, think. I, I, but- think, I, think, I think he's fine. I mean, I, I think the regime in the end is in trouble. I mean, I think these COVID lockdowns have been devastating Bits of the Chinese economic miracle are beginning to come unstuck. The property market famously is in real trouble. Debt and the banking system has always been difficult in China. But unfortunately, I think that that's likely to lead to more extreme behavior, not less. I'm assuming Mr. Norris is is a Brit living in China. That could be completely wrong. But if he is, from a purely British perspective, my worry is that they don't think we matter as much as we did. Um, And I think that will have an impact on, on our trade and our power in the world. And my, my other worry is I think they, despite some of the setbacks that we've been talking about in relation to Putin, I think they think, they the Chinese think, that they are much stronger than they were when Xi Jinping took over. And I think they are. I think we have to accept that. It's, it's also, if we think about the fact that during the Brexit referendum, one of the big arguments made by Brexiteers was that by leaving Europe, we would be able to tie ourselves to the much more rapidly growing economies. Of China. And of course, it's true, you know, 50% of the growth of many of the European firms is in China. 50% of the profits come from China. And the Chinese economy is growing much more quickly than the European economy. So that was a tempting argument if you were looking just at the economics. But of course, geopolitics has changed all of that. Mm. And we're now in a world in which betting big on Britain's trade relationships with China looks very, very dangerous when yeah. the United States and many others are trying to decouple from China. And where actually we probably feel under assault from Russia and Ukraine, that we need to redevelop deeper relationships with our political allies in Europe. There's been some quite good stuff. Macron has talked about this new European political federation, which Liz Truss has said that she will host a meeting of, which I thought was a good initiative. Mm -hmm. But of course, we would all hope that that might mean that we could begin to think about inner and outer circles and Britain becoming closer to Europe again. Yeah. New mantra. Do you think the global protests about what's going on in Iran will lead to a change in the region? And it also 
before we go into protests around the world, of which there have been many, some pretty extraordinary protests in the last 24 hours or so involving schoolchildren inside Iran, which, I mean, these people have got real courage, haven't they? Yeah, extraordinary. I mean, you really do not want to be demonstrating in Iran. That is a brutal state. So do you think it will lead to, do you you think these protests may lead to change or do you think it's just going to lead to an even bigger crackdown? I'm afraid I don't think it's going to lead to dramatic change. I may be wrong. I mean, people have been predicting change in Iran for 40 years and for 40 years, one's been on the side of assuming that it won't change. Neil Ferguson's just, just written an article trying to argue, I think in Bloomberg, that Iran, China, Russia, he thinks those regimes are going to go within his lifetime. Mm. Um, Possible. Possible. You can certainly feel some of the fragility and vulnerability in Russia. And obviously, there is something fundamentally unstable in Iran about a regime where a very large chunk of the population, the educated urban population, is so out of sympathy with the ideology of the government. Yeah. Adam S., I've been watching The Capture. And after watching Laura Koonsberg's interview with Liz Truss, I fear that it's happened. How robotic. Uh, have, you, have you heard about The Capture? Already? No, what ha- what's The Capture? The Capture is this program that is essentially about a politician who becomes a victim of deep fake technology. So uh, there are times when, for example, he is watching himself being interviewed live on television, but it's not him. It's like the ABBA avatars. <laughs> right. I've talked about at the concert. And it is kind of scary. And the technology is kind of moving in that direction. So I suppose there are two points here. One is about just how incredibly robotic Liz Truss's interviews are. Fiona and I have been, we, we listened to her interview with Nick Robinson. And while we were listening. We were both sitting at the kitchen table listening to this interview. We were giving her answers before she was because she had, she's, she does these long pauses and then we were predicting the phrase that would come into her sentence. Did like, you get it right? What, what, what I was got the, about 60%. I was what's very, the phrase that works best if you're trying to be Liz Truss? I've been very clear. I've been, ve- I've been, I've been very clear. Let me be clear. I've been very clear. Um, she's in the round. We have to make decisions looking at things in the round. She says that one a lot. As I said in the leadership election is quite common. Uh, Putin's war in Ukraine is a very, very common one. But, the, but you do have a sense of somebody who's been programmed. And that leads to a feeling that she's inauthentic. But weirdly, not very well programmed. I mean, the amazing thing about some of the recent developments in AI is it's extremely difficult to tell. Uh, that it's AI. Whereas- well, in the capture, it's impossible. In the capture, it's impossible. The right. guy is watching himself being interviewed, and it's really quite well, scary. So, so one of the things that I saw recently, somebody was um, showing me some very interesting innovative AI, where they've trained computers to answer examination questions. And it is extraordinary. I mean, within a couple of minutes, a computer can spew out an answer to almost any examination question and produce a pretty impressive, well-structured, well-argued essay with the right evidence. I mean, the computer isn't yet producing things which are dazzlingly brilliant, mm. but definitely I would have thought the kind of thing that gets you a 2-1 at university can now be done by AI with no problem at all. Oh, well, I wish, wish they'd had those in my days because that's what I ended up with. <laughs> okay, Rory, let's have a quick break. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. 
I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii, okay? And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy, and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Now, Paragraph Films, I love hearing about foreign countries on the pod. Can you talk about any foreign country where things are going well at the moment? Well, my bet for this is the US. I I think we're not focusing on the fact that Biden has been doing much, much better than people predicted, but I'm still very worried about the polls. I think all the things that got the American polling wrong the last three times around are probably going to get the polling wrong again, that something about polling companies is always underestimating the core right-wing vote. They did it with Bolsonaro in Brazil, as we discussed in the last pod. Did it with Brexit? Did it with Brexit, did it with Trump, Trump. did it with Boris Johnson in 2019. Something oddly about the sort of silent, quiet right-wing voter who doesn't quite want to tell the polling company what they're thinking against the very articulate progressive voter who is very noisy, seems to be misleading polls again and again. Mm. I think it's hard to talk about America doing well, though. I mean, I agree with you about Biden. He's doing a lot better than people give him credit for. But we've just had yet another kind of terrible hurricane. I think the polarization issue is still there and very, very strong. Um, but yeah, I mean, politically, I think they're doing better than we give them, the world gives them credit for. I think I'm going I'm to give another plug to my friends in Albania. Oh, yes, very good. Uh, I think that is a country that's, that's doing far better than it's certainly far better than its international uh, reputation. But I guess the premise of the question is is right that most places you look at in the world at the moment, the Portuguese government's done reasonably well, I would argue, but they've got problems with populism coming up as well now. Um, Rory, it's a very personal question here, and I'm quite really? keen, quite yeah. keen on the answer. This is from Neil Russell. Why did you not pursue an army career after your Black Watch short commission? Well, I joined the I joined the army in 1991, and at that stage, it was options for change. It was a very weird moment in the world. Cold War had ended. We were a type B home defense battalion, which meant that we were stuck in Shropshire doing a lot of drill. But we had four blank rounds per man to last us for a month for our training. 
we were still looking at pictures of Russian tanks. And I believed that we were never going to go to war again. I didn't begin to guess that within four or five years, we'd be into the Balkans, then into Afghanistan, then into Iraq. It actually felt as though I was going to spend 30 years rehearsing for a kind of play that would never get put on. And there were older officers in the mess. Blackwatch hadn't been to war. Pat from Ireland hadn't been to war since the Korean War, which is the early 1950s. Years. So I could just see myself becoming one of these kind of old officers sitting, propping up the mess, eating Kit Kats at Elevenses, and then marching over in our smart kilt with our swagger sticks to check on our sergeants. Um, uh, so it was, no, it was not a good time to be joining the army. And maybe if I'd joined five years later, I would have thought about it in a very different way. Um, mm. Do you regret it? Do you regret that choice? No, because I actually found in the foreign office that I got... I got to spend a lot of time with the military. I was based with them in the Balkans. I was based with them again in Iraq. And so I felt I got the best of both worlds, which is yeah. that I could do the political world, but I had much more freedom. I could get out of the camps. I could. I was much more senior, much more quickly. Um, mm. I briefly thought of it. When I came back from my walk, I did this long 18, 21-month walk across Asia where I was walking you know, through 550 village houses. I was very fit when I came back. And I briefly thought of trying to do SAS selection. But a friend of mine who was in the special forces said, Rory, they're not... They're not really, even if you pass, they're not really going to use you. you you've got too romantic an idea <laughs> of what you can actually do there. Here's, here's a question for you. Let's just try to get back to you and off, off me. Um, do you not like talking about yourself, Rory? I'm not going to be your therapist. Do you not like talking about yourself? Particularly, I, I, it's actually horrible talking about the army because a lot of my colleagues, I feel, spend so much time talking about their time in the army. And it's kind of embarrassing because you feel like a total fraud, particularly if, like me, you're only in the army for a few months. I mean, the yeah. whole thing is a horrible thing. Yeah, I get thing. that. I get that. So a couple of questions. Take, take whichever one you want. Claire Brown was interested in the barrister strike and the state of the justice system. Mm-hmm. And David Adger, on a more comical note, here's a question. Can Alistair stop complaining when Rory says you and me? Rory's using a perfectly valid grammatical system since me is not the grammatical s- subject, the phrase you and me is. Does Alistair reply to who's at the door with I? Um, I had a few of these, actually. I'm, st- I'm sticking to my guns, I th- I, I, but I, we don't need to revisit it. But we d- you did have more support than I think you merited, Rory. Let me, t- let me say that. Um, and on the barristers, I think what we have is a criminal justice system that's in a state of near collapse. You know, if you think about the way that we talked about uh, Suella Braverman's speech at the party conference in, um, in the main podcast, the extent to which they now, basically lawyers have joined those people that this government feels the need to attack the whole time. Anybody who takes up a case of a immigrant asylum seeker is a lefty lawyer trying to override the will of government elected by the people. Um, I think we should be very, very, very wary of failing to treat uh, the rule of law itself and the institution on which it depends, with a modicum of restraint and respect. So, so the, the image that lawyers have is of very well-paid and, you know, important members of our, of our community. The reality for an awful lot of lawyers is, um, <laughs> is a pretty crap life, doing lots of crap cases um, for very little money and a legal aid budget that's been absolutely hammered by your friend Austerity. That's really shocking. And I, we, we should talk more about prisons. We've been called up for not talking more about prisons. We'll do that in another episode. Peter Gunning, how do you balance both your work life and family life, especially if you and your partner work internationally? How often and for how long are you both at home? Um, I don't do as many long trips as I used to. I don't like long being away from home for long periods of time. Uh, but I think we've got the balance a lot better now than I did when I was when, when we had children. 
which is probably getting things the wrong way around. It's getting the wrong thing way around, isn't it? I mean, I'm very worried about this because I'm doing a job that I really, really love, um, mm. which is this Give Directly job, but it's taking me a lot to Africa, a lot to the United States. And, you know, I've got a seven-year-old and a five-year-old uh, living here in Amman in Jordan. And it's tough because you come back pretty exhausted off a plane. And I feel a bit mad because I pack three days with 14 meetings a day where I'm sort of changing hats and changing subjects every mm. half an hour. I feel like a total sort of comic fraud doing some kind of musical act. And then I stagger back for the weekend. And you've got a cold. You've got a cold from flying. Exactly. I've got a cold from flying. Um, mm. uh, so, yeah, that's all, all pretty weird. Hey, this, here's a, here's a, uh, a thing. I don't know whether you picked this up, but Svante Pavo, who just won the Nobel Prize for sequencing the DNA of Neanderthals, and actually suggests that people with Neanderthal DNA were a little bit more vulnerable to COVID, was one of the discoveries that he did. And he also found a whole new species of human called the Denisovians by looking at their DNA. So it turned out, along with Homo sapiens and Neanderthals... And, and was, well, has, he, has he asked us a question about whether we have Neanderthal DNA? His father, you might have picked up on this, Suni Bergstrom, won the Nobel Prize himself in 1982, and this is the eighth time that a child of a Nobel laureate has also gone on to win a Nobel Prize. Wow. It's wow. pretty weird, isn't it? Who, who was the first person to win a Nobel Prize in two different disciplines? Oh, gosh, I don't know. I'll give you, I'll give you a clue as a woman. Blimey, I, I really don't know. What an amazing thing. Yeah, Marie Curie. Wow. There you go. Two disciplines. Wow, wow that's yeah. pretty cool. But they were both in the science world. Now, listen, here's two related questions here. Anne-Marie Gillespie, Rory... Do you wish that Liz Truss would stop trying to be so interesting? I think that's picking up on the fact that she once told you off for being too interesting. And Lisa Featherstone, this is more about Keir, what's wrong with boring? Well, I definitely when we're dealing with massive ideologues, we, we all like a bit of boring. I think um, he, he's doing something right, isn't he? Because it's reassuring at the moment to have somebody mm. who seems to be steady as you go, professional, thoughtful. Yeah. But uh, I guess Liz Truss is, is a bewildering phenomenon. <laughs> um, now, Alistair, you tweeted out about a tick that she does when you think she's lying. What's the tick yeah. that you picked up? It's not just when she's lying. It's when she's getting a question. It's when she lies, definitely when she's saying something that's not true, but also when she gets a question where she doesn't want to answer that question, she swallows, and she has quite an active Adam, Adam's apple. So you see her Adam's apple go up and down very, very quickly. So I really do suggest that somebody gets hold of her and says that people will notice this sort of thing. I'm afraid they do when you're under this level of scrutiny. In fact, on this, there's a great question here from somebody called Nigel Booth. When you were in power, how much did you practice the art of completely ignoring a question and giving an answer about something you wanted to talk about? I've tried this with my girlfriend, but I'm finding it very, very difficult. <laughs> well, people accuse us of doing that on question time, don't they? They think that's basically what we do all the time. I don't think we do that much. I don't think we do that much, but it, but it is. I think if you're in the cabinet or the shadow cabinet, you have to do it quite a lot because of collective responsibility. You know, like for example, Rhys Mogg the other day was asked about Michael Gove and basically threw him under a bus quite happily. If Gove was still in the cabinet and Rhys Mogg was asked, "Do you think Michael Gove's a good bloke and doing a good job?" Michael Gove is a very good friend of mine, and I think he's doing an excellent job. That would have been the answer. The terrifying thing with Boris Johnson. One of the reasons I couldn't stay in Boris Johnson's cabinet is that the go-to question for journalists for months was, "Do you think Boris Johnson is honest?" And all yeah. my poor colleagues had to go out and say, "No, definitely is." Now, here's a final thing from from Abby Innes. Final question for me: What has brought us to this pass where intellectual humility? And the acceptance of uncertainty is seen as weak, as distinct from realist. And then she goes on to say, it's as though 
the high modernist 20th century is longer than we thought. So she, a sort of idea that we've got into a world where absolute certainty, rigidity, which is what we see from Liz Truss and Quasi Quarteng, is considered more realistic than expressing uncertainty and humility. But I, I'm not sure about that because not, I, I completely get why she's asking that question. One of the reasons why Quarteng did what he did, why Truss went out and said what she did about it, is because ultimately they had to bow down to the forces of political and economic reality. And they sort of pretended to be humble about it. But actually, if they'd been genuinely humble about it, I think they'd have found that would have done them a power of good. So I think the public is much more ready for people to be doubtful and to talk about doubt. Uh, yes, they want people who can make decisions, but this constant expression of total certainty, and, and I think you've said about me that you think I always express myself with total certainty, and I do up to a point, but I, I'm not scared to sort of go through the process of thinking about things. I thought one of her most extraordinary lines in her interview with Nick Robinson, she said, I'm happy to confirm, I am happy to confirm that we made the right decision. Are you indeed? <laughs> Why couldn't we get the Office of Budget Responsibility to confirm that? I'm happy to confirm we made the right decision. Well, thank you very much indeed for that. Well, I think we've come to the end. And we'll see you all, or as many as you as going to come, and hopefully many of you will be there, live in Blackpool coming this Saturday. There might be a little bit of music. You never know. Might be a little bit of music. You're not setting me up, are you? You're not setting me up. I Possibly, because there's only one musician in this little pair on this podcast. <laughs> all right. Thank you all very much. See you in all Blackpool. Right. See you soon. Bye-bye.